welcome to another episode of the WCHC Sports Podcast, brought to you by WCHC Sports of the College of the Holy Cross. I am Aiden Rupert, alongside me is my good friend Rob Murray, and in case we are sounding a bit off today, it is because we are back to our remote recording. Yes, we are once again operating um, under the Zoom platform, seeing as the college is currently under orange alert. Shout out to Orange, go Syracuse. Um, but yeah, no, Rob and I, we did not get in any sort of big argument or disagreement. So if our chemistry is off, please bear with us. We'll hopefully be back and better than ever for next week's episode. You know, it's been a couple of weeks now. This week was sort of a will we, won't we sort of thing with a podcast. But seeing as we took last Tuesday off right before our Easter break, we figure, you know, there are some sports out there that we should probably fill the people in on and just be able to bounce some ideas off each other. We recently had the conclusion of NCAA March Madness in the men's basketball tournament. Also on today's episode, you know, we'll close things off by offering a few miscellaneous notes from Holy Cross Athletics from the past few days. But before that, we will actually be talking about our recent experience of in-person sports, which was a quick Monday excursion to Fenway Park to see the Boston Red Sox in action against the Tampa Bay Rays. So more to come on that. Rob, I figure sort of the highlight of the sports world, though, and the game that we actually missed in favor of watching the Red Sox would have to be Gonzaga versus Baylor in the NCAA championship game. What are your impressions of Final Four? I'm not quite sure where to start. Obviously, we're probably going to get to a man named Jalen Suggs and a certain shot he hit at the conclusion of the semifinal, but any thoughts to offer just right off the bat? Yeah, you know, it was unfortunate missing that championship game. I think Baylor and Gonzaga was the matchup that everybody wanted to see and anticipated seeing at the beginning of the tournament. Um, why don't we just get Baylor and Houston out of the way if we're talking about the final four. Houston coming into this game did not play a single single digit seed in their run to Indianapolis. They played, I believe it was Cleveland State, then Rutgers, who was a 10, then Syracuse, who was an 11, led by Buddy Bayheim, and then they took care of business against Oregon State, who was the 12 seed coming off their win against Loyola Chicago uh, and Cameron Crutwig, our boy. But yeah, not much of a, a fight that Houston put up against Baylor. They went down 45 to 20 after the first half and Baylor kind of cruised the rest of the way. So, you know, certainly not the days of five slamma jamma over at Houston, but I think it was an NCAA tournament effort they were certainly proud of. They got a few um, really talented players on that roster. They're going to come back next season. Um, and we'll, we'll get to this other game right now. Gonzaga and UCLA, 93 to 90 in overtime. And you were with me when we were watching this game. I think UCLA easily played its best game of the season. And Gonzaga, I don't think, really played all that good of a game. They're just so talented that they were able to stick with, you know, this 11 seed that was giving them so much trouble. And the shot at the end, Jalen Suggs from nearly half court, banking in that three-pointer, I think will go down as... For me, easily a top three uh, March Madness moment uh, in my lifetime and perhaps a top five moment in the history of March Madness. It's it's something that you may never see again. It was incredible to watch it live. Well, yeah, Rob, let's talk about those moments. I was just sort of going to approach it through that lens in terms of an all-time shot and maybe even an all-time game, according to some. 93-90, um, your final score. So a thriller in overtime. But this Jalen Suggs shot, um, and Suggs, for those not aware, is projected to be 
likely a top three pick in the upcoming NBA draft alongside Cade Cunningham and maybe a couple other names are in the pool of consideration. Um, this was the first and only buzzer-beating game winner of this year's NCAA tournament. Um, although Alabama did beat the buzzer back in the Sweet 16 to force OT against UCLA, um, the Bruins obviously came out on top in that one. And there were obviously also several clutch shots in the final seconds of games in the first couple of rounds, but this was the first true buzzer-beating game winner, first and only at that, um, to give Gonzaga a trip to the championship game. So I want to talk about just where it ranks in terms of those all-time moments, because this has dominated the sports discussion for the past few days, or at least up until that championship matchup where Gonzaga unfortunately returned to their choking ways. In terms of all-time shots, the shots that have come up and that are recent enough for us to remember, Christian Leitner versus Kentucky back in 1992, that went off of Grant Hill's sort of football pass off the inbound coming after a timeout. That one forced overtime. Also, people think of Chris Jenkins against UNC. It's funny enough, that shot back in 2016, it came after Marcus Page's heave um, in the half-court offense. And that, to me, in terms of the degree of difficulty on that shot, it's going to go down as maybe the greatest what-if in college basketball history because that shot was ridiculous from Marcus Page, yet it's forgotten because Jenkins of Villanova was able to hit the buzzer-beating game winner in the national championship game to force the game, or to win, to win the game rather than going into overtime. So those are the two that come to mind in terms of shots that are recent enough to remember, but you said top five shot perhaps in college basketball history. Do you have anything, anything else you want to throw into consideration here? Um, I'm blanking on the year, but the Lorenzo Charles put back at the end of the national championship game for North Carolina State um, after the, I think it was Derek Wittenberg who shot the air ball, um, you know, Charles grabbing the rebound and, and putting it back at the buzzer to beat Houston with Hakeem Olajuwon and Clyde Drexler and that five slam and jamma team that I mentioned earlier. That certainly has to be a top five championship moment. Um, you know, you can talk about Michael Jordan during his days at North Carolina, hitting the jump shot over Georgetown and Patrick Ewing to win the national championship for the Tar Heels. Um, and in my lifetime, I think this shot by Jalen Suggs is right up there with the Jenkins game winner, like you mentioned. And although this technically wasn't in the NCAA tournament, I'm gonna to consider this as part of March, Kemba Walker's game winning shot against Pitt when he was on UConn in the Big East tournament, The, the the moment he became cardiac Kemba hitting that step back, I'm never going to forget that moment. That That's right up there with Jalen Suggs' half-court heave to, to take down UCLA. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment for sure. For me, I just want to revisit the topic of degree of difficulty on this Jalen Suggs shot. And quite honestly, he made it look really easy. Um, just kissed it off the glass, easy 38-footer or whatever it was from just inside half-court. Um, the thing that really got me with the shot, though, is just how frantic a moment it came during the game. I mentioned Christian Leitner back in 92. That one came after a timeout, as did, I believe, Chris Jenkins against UNC back five years ago now in 2016. This one, Jalen Suggs, it came off of a putback from UCLA to tie the game at 90. They had no timeouts. And so Suggs took the ball himself. You know, he got it off the inbounds, took, I want to say, three dribbles up the court. You know, you knew that he was not passing that ball. And he just launched it. 
and he was asked after the game and he said that he knew it was going in from the moment it left his hands, which I tend to believe, um, a, a sort of comedic note from this game is he jumped up on the scorer's table and hyped up a section of cardboard fans after he hit the shot, which I found hilarious, but certainly, you know, he was recreating the iconic MJ, Kobe, LeBron James scoring table celebrations of the world, so cannot fault him for that. But in terms of just how difficult the shot was, it was just shocking. I can't come up with many other words to describe it. No, it was an incredible sequence. You know, UCLA had Gonzaga on the ropes pretty much the entire game. You thought a second overtime was coming, adding to the legend of this matchup. But yeah, it was, I mean, Suggs, a really special player. He'll make his way to the NBA, no problem. And I do feel like as great as this moment was, as lucky um, as we were as college basketball fans to witness this, I still felt robbed in a sense because, you know, imagine if we had the crowd that witnessed, you know, Chris Jenkins' game-winning shot in Indianapolis for Jalen Suggs' game winner in the final four just i felt like it would have added on to the legend it would have been you know one of the loudest venues you've ever heard in your life and it, it just would have added to to the hype around that shot but you know beggars can't be choosers we witnessed an all-time game fans or no fans between gonzaga and ucla but you know the the legend ends there for gonzaga they lose by 16 to baylor in the national championship game like you said they kind of continue their legacy of choking on the big stage. And after Sugg's shot, you know, putting this team down in history, I thought it was the only possible ending that Gonzaga would win the national championship. It would have been a storybook finish to an undefeated season, the first one uh, we would have seen in decades. So it's just a testament to how well-coached Baylor is, how deep they are. They had four guys in double figures in the national championship game. They forced a lot of turnovers, controlled the offensive glass. It was it was a professional grade performance from Baylor, a team who was kind of put to the side in the middle of the season in terms of the national championship conversation just because they were struggling uh, and they had a bunch of COVID stoppages. So, you know, credit to them. They, they bounced back and took down the best team in the country. Yeah, I agree with those assessments. Back to the sub shot. You know, the real travesty was not having fans in there. But I agree with also just the mystique that would have gone into that shot. The legend had that catapulted the Zags onto the national championship. But getting to the national championship game itself, um, Gonzaga versus Baylor, of course, it, it frankly wasn't even close. And it took us a while for that to set in, in my opinion. I remember we were trying to catch some of the game on our phones on the way back into Worcester. And it just didn't seem real for a while because in the first half, even down 16 points, you had Gonzaga players like your boy Drew Timmy. He caught a dunk there in the first half and he did his little mustache celebration. And you got to think that even the Gonzaga players at that point weren't really entertaining the prospect of losing. You don't celebrate with your mustache if you're going to go on and lose the national championship game. So it was interesting, and I think it really it wasn't until there were about six, five minutes left in the game that it started to set in, this is what's really happening. And to Baylor's credit, they, they took care of business, as you mentioned. And just because I want to throw Holy Cross into the mix here, here's, here's how Holy Cross basketball ties into the 2021 NCAA March Madness Championship. So there was an interesting tweet from CBS prior to Monday's game. It said, and I quote, 
the world was very different when Baylor last made the national championship in 1948. And the tweet continues to cite such instances as the average price of gallon, av excuse me, average price of gas per gallon being 26 cents back in 1948. Um, as another example, the AP men's basketball poll did not yet exist. And then here's the here's where Holy Cross comes into play. In 1948, Holy Cross was reigning national champion of college basketball. So the fact that CBS Sports is sort of trolling Holy Cross on Twitter a little bit, the fact that we're measuring long, just how long it's been since Baylor was relevant by how long it's been since Holy Cross was relevant, it was just sort of a fun side note that I pulled from this one. Holy Cross, of course, captured the NIT title back in 48, or 47, I suppose, um, rather than the NCAA, although the NIT was considered the more prestigious tournament by and large back then. So interesting way to tie Holy Cross into the national championship game, which, you know, we mentioned not quite as compelling as the Final Four itself, but we got a decent matchup as college basketball fans. It was between the two teams that we wanted, even if it wasn't quite the game that we envisioned. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, it reminds me of kind of what we saw out of the Super Bowl this year at the beginning of the playoffs. You know, a lot of people were saying Packers Chiefs would be the ideal matchup, but Buccaneers Chiefs was about as good as it got. Tom Brady versus Patrick Mahomes, everything was lined up in Tampa Bay to be, you know, a a Super Bowl of legends. I mean, it was the stage was set to have one of the most incredible games you've ever seen, and it ended up being thirty-one to nine. The Chiefs didn't even break double digits. So, you know, as much as we love sports, um, there is a tendency for them. Uh, to disappoint us in the biggest moments and we saw the same thing with Baylor and Gonzaga they were kind of the consensus favorite teams to get to this point at the beginning of the season all the way up until the end and unfortunately they kind of gave us a dud I'm not gonna necessarily blame it all on Gonzaga because they still had a pretty solid shooting performance their defense left a lot to be desired but you know they they're an excellent team and will more than likely be back in the national championship conversation next year with a bunch of guys returning you won't have jalen suggs you probably won't have corey kispert but drew timmy andrew nemhard Joel yai all those guys will likely be back but baylor was just the better team that night and you know they i think are one of the best turnaround stories in sports when you consider how far their program has gone you know, the difficulties they had to overcome in the past decade and now they find themselves at the top of Baylor and Flo Thamba back on top of the college basketball world shout out Flo yeah I'll agree with all those points I will say I envision Ayayi specifically testing the NBA waters I know scouts are pretty high on him at the moment but we'll see what that decision is one last thing I'll throw your way before we move on to some baseball and a little bit of Holy Cross athletics in this zoom podcast what are your thoughts on Mark Few? Obviously, you know, he's a coach, arguably one of the greatest basketball coaches of the 21st century, and he has, you know, catapulted a relatively obscure mid-major program to being a national powerhouse coming out of the West Coast Conference. You know, they've, they've made NCAA tournament appearances just about every single year now for the past 20-something years. And you got to think nobody's coming for his job, obviously. That's not how college basketball works. You know, we can't, we, we're not going to create storylines out of nothing here. But do you think it could ever be time for Mark Few 
to make the decision to move on from his time at Gonzaga and perhaps join the NBA ranks, for instance, because you definitely have to think that he has a job waiting for him, again, as one of the century's greatest coaches. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, when you think of guys like Mark Few um, and other coaches similar to him in terms of those who've made it to the NBA, uh, Boston Celtics, Brad Stevens certainly comes to mind, coaching the mid-major Butler Bulldogs, bringing them to a couple of Final Fours and a national championship appearance. So, you know, I'm, I certainly have no doubt that the demand for Mark Few is there in terms of the NBA. Um, I think it's just a matter of how well his coaching style would translate to the professional level. I mean, you know, as competitive as college basketball is, it's certainly not the same as the NBA in terms of the way it's played, the players you see coming out, the schemes that are run. So I certainly think it would take an adjustment. I don't know enough about the X's and O's of basketball, and I haven't watched enough Gonzaga basketball to make a definitive statement on whether or not Mark Few would make a good professional coach. I mean, it's it's hard to, to go from college to the pros. You had John Beeline, great coach at Michigan, go to the Cleveland Cavaliers a few years ago, and that really ended up working out very poorly. So. Mark Few has the Gonzaga job as long as he wants it. He's done an incredible job, like you said, bringing that program to the top. I still think he's hungry for a national championship, though. Gonzaga's got to get the monkey off its back. They've been in so many, you know, excellent situations and had so many great opportunities to cement themselves as a blue blood basketball program, if they haven't already, if a championship is what it takes. But I don't think, I don't see Mark Few leaving anytime soon um, because I think you know when you make that program what it is you have a tie to it and I think he, he feels very strongly about the Bulldogs and that team and I don't know if he'll leave or even consider leaving until you know he gets that program the championship it deserves yeah fair enough I think for every Brad Stevens you have out there you have you know at least one Rick Pitino um, at least one John Beeline as you mentioned I will say, though, on a lot of NBA scouts' radars, apparently, or GM's radars, is Juwan Howard after his first year in Michigan. So he had a tremendous year with the program, obviously coming up with the number one seed. Couldn't make it all the way to the Final Four, but I would not be shocked to see him among the ranks of NBA coaches, whether it's as a head coach or assistant coach. You know it's all a coaching carousel on the professional level, so um, anything can happen. And I'm not one of these people, but I will say some people would be happy to replace Brad Stevens of the Celtics with a coach like Mark Few um, at this particular moment. But speaking of Boston sports, I don't want to dwell on the Celtics. They're in a head-to-head matchup against the esteemed New York Knicks tonight. Let's talk about the Red Sox instead. As mentioned or alluded to at the top of the podcast, you and I and a few others, we took a trip over to Fenway on Monday afternoon to catch Monday evening's action against the Tampa Bay Rays. This for me, Rob, was my very first MLB game and my first trip to the historic Fenway Park in Boston, Mass. And we witnessed an 11-2 route of the Tampa Bay Rays, who again made the World Series just last season. And Boston has actually won its last three games, and they actually caught the sweep albeit early season, of the Rays after their ugly 0-3 start against the Baltimore Orioles just a few days prior. So, you know, let's talk ballpark experience, man. I'm sure you're a seasoned vet when it comes to this, but how did the COVID ballpark era stack up against maybe what you're used to? It was really strange. I mean, I'm going to be honest, 
the the feeling of being back in a stadium that is relatively filled with fans and having some semblance of life it was an awesome feeling i mean we were lucky enough to call a bunch of holy cross men's and women's basketball games this winter um, and while that was a lot of fun it just didn't feel right and i'm sure you could agree um i don't i think any sporting event without fans is an injustice and being back in a stadium albeit filled with about four thousand people was it was a cathartic experience. I could feel the energy building uh, as we approached game time. I could feel the crowd, you know, each time the Red Sox scored or got a big out. It, it really meant a lot. And um, it's, I think it's only a sign of things to come. It's only gonna get better. And once we're at the point where we can, you know, fill stadiums all the way, it's, it's gonna be pretty special. And I'd like to get your take on the first time at Fenway, the, you know, cathedral of Major League Baseball, that and perhaps Wrigley Field out in Chicago where my Cubs play. Um, what was it like? We got a chance to go down pretty much right on the outside of the infield before the game. Some of the security guards were nice enough to let us uh, go down on the left field line right by the Green Monster and kind of lean over and check out the Rays and the Red Sox warming up. What was that like? How did it compare to, say, going to TD Garden before Boston Celtics game? I'll tell you first i'll offer this comparison just just put this into perspective it's an upgrade to say the least from rochester's lowly frontier field uh at which the reds uh sorry not red sox rochester red wings play their home games they were previously a an affiliate of the minnesota twins i think they've since moved on to maybe the washington natural uh nationals i'm not quite sure what level they're at i'd have to look that one up but yeah, it's, you said it, you know, it's the cathedral, it's the holy grail of baseball, right up there with Wrigley Field, and just the game day buzz, there's nothing quite like it, I haven't experienced sort of the game day energy in too many cities outside of Boston, I've been to a handful of NBA games, probably approaching like eight, eight or nine uh, games in total now, but I've caught most of those at TD Garden. I caught one game in Cleveland and another preseason one in Albany, which was my first NBA game. And so the buzz, like it's right there. I, I love it. Even at, you know, 12 and a half percent capacity or whatever the state um, is operating at these days, the buzz is still there. And I think that's what we missed as sports fans. You know, you and I, you know, we didn't quite have that buzz even in preparing for um, Holy Cross Athletics. We were busy talking about how we were going to call the game, not to mention the fact that there weren't fans in the stands with the exception of the the home football matchup that we attended just a couple of weeks back. But to me, just the vibe, the energy, you know, it's there, all things considered. And I think that's just about all you can ask for at this point. Yeah, for sure. And while we didn't see the most competitive game, Aiden, I think uh, there was no shortage of excellent moments throughout. And we saw the Red Sox put up 11 runs on 16 hits. We saw a home run off the right field foul pole from JD Martinez. We saw what I, looking back, wasn't an inside the park home run by Xander Bogarts, I believe was a double with um, uh, an error on the part of the catcher that allowed Bogarts to run home. Uh, and perhaps an early catch of the year candidate or play of the year candidate by Ray's right fielder, Randy Arena. Um, if anybody watches uh, or is a regular watcher of Web Gems or Baseball Tonight, uh, you would have seen Randy Arozarena 
go all out for a ball out in right field, you know, full extension catch, made everyone in the stadium, Rays and Red Sox fans alike, kind of do a collective gasp. It was one of the better catches that I've seen as a baseball fan in a really long time. And I think we got to see perhaps the face of the baseball section of the podcast, Franchi Cordero, the Red Sox left fielder, have a great game for himself. Two hits, two RBIs. Sander Bogart's chipping in four hits as well. So great day to be a Red Sox fan uh, on Monday night. And, uh, you know, really just a an experience that gave me the sense that things are, are slowly getting back to normal and, uh, you know, approaching normalcy for us as sports fans. It was it was a really fun experience, and I can't wait to do it more over the summer. The Rosarena catch was absurd, to say the least. Listeners, just if you have a second... Go on your laptop, look up the Rosarena catch April 5th, 2021. Promise it is worth your time. I think it was ultimately a sports center top 10 play, but I, I can't imagine it wasn't, even if I didn't count or catch the countdown. I remember even the people a few rows up from us, they looked right back at us when that play went down and said, that's sports center top 10 right there. And yep. they are correct. And I'm glad you brought up my man Franchi. He was clearly a fan favorite among the crowd at Fenway. You know, I got attached to my boy Franchi early on, and I'm glad he put forth a great game. He was batting ninth, too, in the Red Sox lineup. But, you know, he he was batting like he was in the three or four hole. He had an excellent game. While while you continue, let me look up his season stats if if he can keep this up. No, I just like his name, man. Honestly, like Franchi, something you can latch onto as a Boston sports fan. And frankly, you know, I was I felt a little bit out of place there. I'm I'm not a Red Sox fan, but the way I posed it is I'm not not a Red Sox fan. So you know, I think that that was enough to get by amongst the uh, the Boston diehards there. Yeah, I mean, with a name like Franchi Cordero, we saw Manuel Margot for the Tampa Bay Rays, another great name for a baseball player, but. Yeah, we were actually lucky enough to see Franchi's two lone RBIs on the season in the four games he's played. So we were very lucky in our Monday trip to Fenway Park. So moving on um, from what was an awesome trip over to Fenway, great way to cap off our Easter break. Just going to share a few notes on Holy Cross Athletics. Rob, feel free to stop me at any time, but I know I'm going to keep things short here, so I will fly through these. So first and foremost, a little bit of men's basketball. We mentioned that Austin Butler uh, actually came up with a graduate transfer to UNC Charlotte. Uh, Patrick Gregberg brought that up in one of his segments during last week's episode. But now joining Austin Butler in the grad transfer portal was Matt Faw, who will also take advantage of that fifth year of NCAA eligibility due to COVID. And so he, after entering the transfer portal, ultimately decided he will suit up as a grad transfer for New Jersey Institute of Technology. So interestingly, neither Faw nor Butler ends up in their home state of Pennsylvania. Um, Butler being from Latrobe, PA, and Faw from King of Prussia. We were sort of speculating about some of the programs that may have interest in them. And ultimately, it's going to be Butler at UNC Charlotte and Faw at NJIT. And Faw, he averaged 11.4 points per game and 5.4 rebounds last season in what was his best collegiate season to date. So obviously, congratulations go out to Matt Faw following the great campaign for the Crusaders. We'll see what he can get done at the Division I level in his fifth year as a college athlete. Shout-out goes also to junior catcher Angelo Diancunto of Holy Cross Baseball, 
on being named Holy Cross Athletics Crusader of the Week. I actually have not caught very much Holy Cross baseball this season, but the team has quietly bounced back with five straight victories following an 0-7 start to the season. And I want to say we're currently playing host to Merrimack College. I think that was a late addition to the schedule. I'm not quite sure if that one's wrapped up yet. We'll have to get that a fact check on the final score. Yeah, that one did wrap up. Unfortunately, we had an 11-8 to lead going into the top of the ninth, but we surrendered four runs in that half inning and fell 12-11 to Merrimack College. Um, they had a, I think it was an RBI double, it looks like, and a three-run double to take the lead against the Crusaders. And uh, we went down one, two, three in the bottom of the ninth. So tough way to end that Wednesday contest against Merrimack for the Crusaders. They'll have a four-game set against Army West Point this weekend. Doubleheader here on Mount St. James on Saturday, April 10th. And then a two-game set up in West Point uh, on April 11th, Sunday. The latter game in that two-game series uh, being one that was postponed from March 28th. So uh, after some brief layoffs at the beginning of the season Aiden, that we talked about earlier on the podcast, Holy Cross's baseball season really rounding into full swing. And they sit at five and eight on the year after tonight's loss to Merrimack. So uh, like you said, certainly riding the ship, five wins out of the last six games. And you know they'll look to continue that momentum as they pick up Patriot League play. Yeah, Robin, also from Holy Cross Baseball, wanted to give one more shout out to sophomore Jack DeLauro, who was recently named baseball team, or excuse me, Patriot League Pitcher of the Week for the conference, as announced on uh, Tuesday, April 6th. And DeLauro had really a breakout performance in a 7-0 victory over Bucknell back on Saturday the 3rd. He struck out a career-high 11 batters, had a complete game shutout in a seven-inning contest, and allowed just two total hits that day, too. So shout-out to Jack DeLauro bringing home the hardware for Holy Cross Baseball, which we'll actually revisit in just a couple of minutes in terms of our broadcasting schedule for this weekend. But in other news, Holy Cross Volleyball season came to an unfortunate end the other day. I want to say Saturday in the Patriot League semifinals against Army. It was a hard-fought five-set contest, and unfortunately, Holy Cross came up just short in that one. But senior middle and outside hitter Katie Kierens was named to the Patriot League All-Tournament team with 11 kills and eight blocks on the contest. So congrats obviously go out to Katie and to women's volleyball in what was a pretty solid season across the board overall. And just to revisit very quickly, um, you know, what we're doing in terms of baseball this weekend, we're tentatively planning on broadcasting some of those Army West Point games for baseball on Saturday. That has yet to be finalized as the campus is still in the process of shifting from its orange alert status back into yellow. So we'll see what that entails for WCHC Sports. But, you know, we hope to be out there on the call for baseball sooner rather than later. And stay tuned to our Instagram. That's WCHC underscore sports. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. We will do our best to keep things updated in terms of where we're going to be and when on the call. And also stay tuned. We will also see if we have any updates on uh, Friday's podcast episode. That one coming to you courtesy of Patrick Grunberg and company. So Rob, been a pleasure, you know, recording. Shame that we are back in the Zoomiverse for this episode of the podcast, but Great stuff. I, mean, I will definitely miss college basketball, um, 
But that said, you know, great time this past week visiting Red Sox and a lot to come for Holy Cross Athletics. Yeah, man, for sure. We got to hit up Fenway Park at some point in the near future. And, you know, although I would have liked to be with you uh, recording this episode, it was nice to take a little nostalgia trip down memory lane uh, in terms of the, the Zoom recording. I know a lot of memories from this past summer in terms of starting the podcast and keeping up uh, on bubble sports you know, in the months of July and August, it was, it was nice to return, but I think next week, hopefully we'll, we'll be back in person again. Yeah. Shout out to Zoom. But in the meantime, thanks for listening to the WCHC sports podcast and we will catch you next time.